Oh, this is nice. Welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to um, another podcast, Suddenly Suddenly episode. Um, it's coming to you live from the backyard studio. I'm actually sitting on a green banana lounge. Uh, next to a very green plant not, not too far away from a green cane chair and, uh, uh, oh looking at a, a green corrugated iron fence with a little bit of grass here in the foreground so it's um, imagine a lot of green it's not always that way though This is Chris, um, cat, and uh, uh, my usual co-producer is still away, um, and she has the fluffy thing. So if you notice any difference to the sound, that's the reason why. Um, you'll hear some pretty loud sounds in the background. We're at the back of a house on quite a busy road, and it seems like there are a lot of loud motorcycles. It's Friday afternoon, it's maybe about four o'clock. So, yeah, I think pretty people are riding, driving pretty hard to get home for the weekend. Um, do whatever they do there. Gosh, I don't know. Maybe have a beer. So you get to enjoy some loud motorcycle background noise now and again. And a big hello to, to Annie, our sometimes co-presenter and um, listener, uh, consistent listener, probably our only listener. Um, I'm grateful. G'day. Uh, nice to be speaking here. Um on the line so I'm going to make this podcast run for about 20 minutes I found that if I talk for much longer than that particularly when I'm alone I tend to just get a bit tired and, and, and waffle on even more than normal so I'm going to get stuck into it um, I'm going to do a little bit of reading of a I'll start it anyway um, I've start the reading of a paper um, by authors Whiteman and Doran, and the manuscript was received in nine, January 1993, published in April 1993. So we're, I always have to do the maths on this, so 27 years ago now, this paper was published. Seems amazing. Um, the authors are, this is slightly interesting, hmm from the Pacific Northwest Laboratory in Richland, Washington. I assume that means Washington State. I don't really know where that is, but the Pacific Northwest gives me the impression that it's on the Pacific and in that northern part of the west coast of the US, so perhaps it's not too far from where Annie is residing at the moment, in Vancouver. And the paper is titled The Relationship Between Overlying Synoptic Scale Flows and winds within a valley. It's published in the Journal of Applied Meteorology. 
Actually, it was published in November 93. The Journal of Applied Meteorology is, um, well, it's got copyright, American Meteorological Society. So I'm guessing this is a well thought of journal. Fairly well thought of, at least. Um, this is probably above board. <laughs> it's been through the scientific vetting process, so yeah, let's say definitely. There's an abstract. I think I might leave that and just go straight to the intro. The interaction of winds in a valley with winds above the valley is of interest for both practical and theoretical reasons. I think that sounds reasonable, um, but you know, perhaps the interest can be um, something bordering on beauty or a more pure interest or one that just uh, could be fascination I suppose with one's local um, climate and um, geography it could lead to like a, a sort of sense of grounding in a specific area I think uh, an interest in these sorts of things yeah grounding like a making making a place feel a bit more like home because you know something a bit more about it um, you know I, I have an interest in uh, meteorology generally um, but yeah, it is beautiful to be sitting in this little yard and watching the trees whoosh and just ponder what might be making them whoosh so much. Um, and that, that sort of pondering and enjoyment of those natural effects seem sort of wholesome and uh, so like it makes it a nicer place to be um, one feeling gratitude to the small for the for the small idiosyncrasies of the area could be something like that going on um, it takes one out of oneself maybe it it even helps from the point of view of one's mental outlook just being generally interested in things outward at least for periods of the day so yeah I'm sure there are practical and theoretical reasons too and maybe these things I'm talking about are practical anyway it goes on to say for example the prediction of the dispersion of pollutants released at the ground or from elevated smokestacks in a valley requires the ability to relate local valley circulations to ambient sampling conditions. Yeah, well, that's what this is about. This paper is into um, relating those smaller scale winds within the valley to the overlying sampling scale winds. And I should give a bit more background, I suppose. Um, I'm speaking from 
towards the eastern end of a pretty significant valley for Australian standards, uh, the Hunter Valley. Um, where I'm sp the backyard I'm speaking from is located in the town of Maitland, which is actually on the Hunter River. Um, it's only a quite a narrow, maybe 50 to 70 metre wide strip of chocolatey water here. Uh, but yeah, the the valley floor here might be more like I want to say 30 kilometers wide oh gosh that's many times wider than the river itself and as uh, we're about I think 25 to 30 k's from the coast here at Maitland and the valley spreads out even more into a broad kind of mostly low-lying coastal plain as the river heads to Newcastle and a lot of that plain is flood plain but not all of it there are sort of little rises small bits of topography in there um, but yeah further inland the valley is narrower it becomes narrow as one heads to the west much narrower um, to the north and south there are fairly high ranges maybe not high for some parts of the world but for Australian standards pretty high given that the highest range here is you know, Kosciuszko or Kosciuszko at about 2,000 metres the Barrington Tops which is the main range to the north of here almost literally north of where I am is somewhere around 1,500 metres the highest part anyway and it's quite a big broad massive and in just further inland from there, also on the northern side of the Hunter Valley, is the Liverpool Ranges. And they run, they actually run more or less east to west. And they're up around 11 or 1200 metres. On the southern side of the valley is the Central Ranges. And a bit further south, around the Blue Mountains, they're probably at their highest. Particularly that Oberon area, around 14, 1500 metres. But yeah, closer to the valley itself, I think there'll be plenty of peaks at around 1,200. Um, so I think given that we're near sea, sea level, we're probably looking at, yeah, the down here uh, in the eastern part of the valley. So probably looking at... Um, you know, above a thousand meters higher than a thousand meters valley walls. But yeah, just bear in mind that you know, valley walls, it seems a bit hard line. Um, they're somewhat gradual, and the valley is broad here. Further in the west, though, um, well, it's interesting the uh, New South Wales, in fact, eastern Australia, um, from Victoria all the way up to far north Queensland. Um, along the eastern part of the continent just before you get to the coast is the Great Dividing Range and uh, that probably has a fair bit of variety of heights in it like maybe from about you know, 600 metres up to uh, 1300 1400 metres 
a large portion of the way. There are some low points as well, but a decent sort of um, divide between coastal parts and the inland of the continent. And for the New South Wales portion, the Hunter Valley that I'm trying to describe is, the, I think, pretty easily the biggest break in the range. So the Great Fighting Range goes in New South Wales goes from sort of down around uh, Threadbur or around Kosciuszko, that's in New South Wales, the highest peak, um, along through Canberra, which is at about 600 metres or a bit higher. Um, there's some higher territory just around there, the Brindabellas, and, and ranges to the southeast, to the central ranges, central tablelands, Blue Mountains, as I spoke of. And there are some higher parts there, as I said, 13 or 1400 metres from memory, and uh, largely above 1000. Then as you head north from there, it's the Hunter, and that's where the break occurs. So the upper part of the Hunter... Um, Maybe it's just, you could consider it as just a low part of the, the range. It drops to, the upper part of the Hunter might be about 300 metres high. Above sea level, I should say. Um, so, quite a bit lower than either side, because like to the north, then you get the northern tablelands, and they're up above 1,000 metres well and truly. So, it's a, a really big break in the Great Divide at least from the point of view of New South Wales. Um, the biggest break that I'm aware of, there are some other significant valleys a bit further to the south, but I don't think they're as broad or uh, as, um, or I believe, as significant as this. So that's why we're interested in this. Uh, that's why I'm interested in this, these, these within valley winds. So. Um, while empirically derived relationships may be useful, back to the paper now, it is also desirable to develop an understanding of the mechanisms responsible for the observed behaviour. In the article, we combine results from analyses of measurements and model-generated gener data to provide insight into factors affecting the climatology of the winds in the Tennessee Valley. Yeah, it's interesting that they're looking at the Tennessee Valley that wouldn't be up there um, in the northwest of the continent of the US. So uh, I could be wrong there. Imagine Tennessee somewhere in the south. Uh, back to the paper. We begin by considering four mechanisms that can produce distinct relationships between winds above and within a valley. The mechanisms can be illustrated in terms of the relationship between the within valley and above valley winds they will produce. Uh, above valley, in brackets, geostrophic or ambient winds. And these relationships are summarized in figure one. I'll try and talk through figure one when it's referred to. The first process to be considered is thermal forcing. According to this mechanism, the within valley winds do not depend on the wind direction above the valley, but rather are generated by locally developed along valley pressure gradients. Okay, so localized pressure gradients due to, you know, um, thermal forcing, so due to 
um, differences in temperature. That's what I get from the, these pressure gradients are produced hydrostatically, so that's associated with gravity, from temperature differences that form along the valley axis. That are a feature of the meteorology of many valleys. So it sort of suggests that the temperature differences need to be along the valley axis. Alright, let's see how we go there. Such local, so they are very locally, well, forced, yeah, let's see what it says. Such locally driven thermal wind systems produce up valley winds during the daytime. I think, yeah, these up valley winds would also be dependent on how hot it is um, and how high um, the ranges are and probably how steep the valley is. A long time ago I visited Nepal and I walked in, I think it's called the Kali Gandaki Valley. I was walking near a town called Jomsom. I may have been trying to reach Jomsom and I set out fairly late in the morning and encountered some uh, winds that, up valley winds that were um, probably 30 knots, something like that. Really difficult to walk into. Um, and there are, in that part of the world, Kaligandaki is the deepest valley in the world. It's got the Annapurna ranges all around it. It's massively, and it's very narrow. It's cut by a glacier. Um, glaciers are still there, roughly. Um, so, it was very difficult to walk. I think I just gave up and waited for it to ease. The Nepalese people, even back then, um, had uh, some windmills, wind generated. They had batteries and um, that was their main source of power, the wind. I think aircraft would avoid that uh, afternoon period because you can fly up there from memory to Jomsom and land in the on the floor of the valley, just little light planes, look very dodgy. Uh, yeah. So there are um, up valley winds during the daytime and down valley winds during the night. And they, uh, so the up valley winds is, yeah, uh, I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Commonly observed in areas with large diurnal, yeah, large diurnal cycles in surface sensible heat flux. So big difference between day and night time for heating and especially occur under conditions where upper level winds are weak because um, if the winds were strong then it, it would you know the ambient wind would perhaps mix down or channel through um, and produce a whole lot of turbulence and chaos for the um, to for the cycle to set up anyway light winds are needed for these variations in temperature to, to, to be set up. Otherwise, um, you know, like the, the hotter air could be mixed into the cooler air by that chaotic flow, for instance. 
for the stronger chaotic flow. Figure one illustrates the idealized dependent dependence of valley wind direction on ambient wind direction that would result from this mechanism. So it's an idealized dependence of the valley wind on the ambient wind. Assuming a valley axis that runs northeast to southwest, as in the Tennessee Valley. Okay, so what figure one shows, it has three, um, oops, already over the 20 minute, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about figure one and then think probably sign off and maybe put this one in the can. Uh, so, um, there are three charts for the thermally driven component and um, they're, they're just X versus Y graphs uh, on, on the, um, the x-axis is the geostrophic wind or ambient wind, that's that overall wind and the directions are there, north, east, south, west and then back to north and then up the y-axis is the valley wind so north, east, south, west, north directions again so what it shows is that if at night time um, if the geostrophic wind is an easterly say, and the therm this thermally driven component um, is a northeasterly. It shows if the geostrophic wind is a southerly, then this thermally driven component, wind in the valley, valley wind, would still be a northeasterly. Um, if the geostrophic wind is a westerly or anywhere between south and west or west and north, then um, at night time the valley wind is still a northeasterly. So um, doesn't matter what the geostrophic wind is. With this component, this thermally driven component, at night time, if it's functioning, if, if it's in play, if the winds are light, it's clear and there's been a lot of cooling, then um, the valley wind would be a northeasterly. This is um, hypothesizing and suggesting. I guess the valley runs, the higher part of the valley is in the northeast and the lower part is in the southwest. Uh, in the daytime, this thermally driven component, um, same sort of graph, could, I'll ask a question, what, what do you think the wind direction would be in the daytime? Any takers? Well, it turns out if, you know, if there's a, any direction at all of geostrophic wind, would have been a better question for me to ask if, what do you think the wind direction would be with a southerly geostrophic wind? And then say, what do you think the direction would be with an easterly geostrophic wind? But yeah, I missed that chance. If I stop now, I could, could come back to it, I suppose, but I think I'd better finish up. So every geostrophic wind direction results given this thermally driven, driven uh, forcing results in a southwesterly so the winds blow up the valley 
um, towards higher terrain. I think we'll talk about why that could take place in the next uh, edition of this podcast. Um, if anybody has any feedback or wants to send in some insight, then that would be awesome. I, I should say that I think I mentioned that there were three graphs. The third one is just the total of the two. And so they're just horizontal lines, actually. Two horizontal lines um, sort of summarize this thermally driven component, which is pretty sweet, really. Mm. Um, anyway, been really wonderful to speak from the green banana lounge in the green yard. Um, I'm look forward to, looking forward to rocking these podcast airways more often now that I have this banana lounge out. I, I feel like I have, there's, there's a chocolatey brown sort of old wooden chair on the other side of the yard. I feel like I'm down by the river already. So, you know, if I'm busting to go to the loo, we've got an outside toilet here um, full of spiders. Uh, might do a, um, a podcast exclusively from that, Lou. Yeah, and get the spiders to guest. Anyway, being a bit silly there. I hope everybody's taking care of themselves and wishing much joy to everybody and gentle times. Uh, thanks for having me around. Bye.